Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today is our last virtual pre-race episode. We have the Rambling Runner Virtual Marathon coming up this weekend. I can't wait to see what all of you are able to do. The amount of PRs and wonderful performances in the 5K, 10K, and half marathon were simply astounding. I just could not believe the performances that I saw in light of the fact that Shoot, these were the first virtual races for so many of you, and I can't wait to see what happens this weekend as well. So this episode is designed to not only help the people who are going to be doing virtual marathons this coming weekend, but doing a marathon at any point in their life. And also, hey, you might not be a marathoner at all. Hopefully we provide some entertainment as well for everyone who could potentially be listening. So what's the lineup for today? All right, so we got Nate Stewart. We got Callie Vinson and we have James McCurdy. Nate Stewart ran a PR in a solo for solo marathon a couple weeks ago. I couldn't, can't really call it a virtual marathon. I just kind of did it on his own, but it really is the same effect. And he ran a PR. He'd been running marathons for a decade and he finally got a PR that beat his first ever marathon time. And he was really excited to share that story with us. Callie Vincent is an ultra marathoner. She wasn't always a runner. She actually lost 200 pounds and now does 200 mile races. How about that for symmetry? She is an absolutely just a beast of a runner and just such a shoot, man. I was talking to her before we started recording and she's a, a copywriter in her day job. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've never been more worried about the word choices that I'm using. Uh, she was just such a pleasure to talk to in so many ways uh, and can really speak to what it's like to run solo for a long period of time. She does it all the time. And for a lot of you, this virtual marathon is going to be a whole new experience. And I think she provides a lot of insight on that. And James McCurdy's here to talk not only some of the same things that Callie's talked about in terms of how to do this to the best of your ability, but also just to talk about how to run the best marathon you possibly can under any circumstances. And he has coached hundreds of runners to do just that. So without further ado, let's get into this episode of the Rambling Runner podcast. Hello, Callie, and welcome to the show. Hi, it's so great to be here. I appreciate you coming on. This is our three-part series in, uh, right before the Rambling Runner Virtual Marathon, and I really wanted to get an ultra runner just like yourself who has experienced you know, these kinds of mammoth long runs and these solo ventures and have done it many times and kind of can really speak to not only the physical grind that 26.2 miles entails, but also the mental and physical grind that maybe just some people aren't used to being alone, running three, four, maybe even five hours. So again, thank you so much for coming out. I can't wait to chat about it. I guess before we do, just to lay the groundwork, how did you get into uh, long distance running and ultra running? Well, um, you know, I, I might be an anomaly, but my first race ever was the Chicago Marathon. Um, I just kind of decided one day, I was like, you know what, well, backing up, I decided one day, like if I can conquer running, then maybe I can conquer anything that I set up for myself. So I started just going on these long runs by myself. I got up to 13 miles and I was like, all right, that's all right. We're in a good place. 
got to 20 and I was like, you know what, I think maybe I could sign up for a race. So I signed up with a local um, group here for the Chicago Marathon, um, learned how to put my bib on for the first time uh, before getting into the corral and, um, you know, just kind of went for it. It was great to do it, you know, as part of a big race because there's so many people around, someone, so much energy there to keep you going. Um, but after that, then I decided, you know, my motto in life has always been double or nothing. So after that, I was like, you know what, if I could, if I could do a marathon, maybe I could get into, you know, something more. But really, I didn't even know about ultras until I think I was just sitting um, at my running clubs, um, you know, a night run, and I saw a magazine, it was uh, like runner's world or something like that. And I flipped through the pages and just kind of waiting for the run to start. And I see this article on these 50 mile and 100 mile races. And I was like, the heck is this? <laughs> People are actually running 50 miles, 100 miles. It's just absurd. And they're not doing it on the flat terrain, which is, you know, what we have in Chicago here, but they're doing it over mountains and, you know, at altitude. And I thought, man, I, I love the outdoors. I've always been a kind of an outdoorsy person and I'm, I'm slow. And I, and I picked up through this article that some of these runners, you know, they're doing, these these greater runs at a slower pace because you, you kind of have to you know you have to be able to endure the distance and to do that you you need to slow down so that your body can you know take you through to the end so that really caught my attention too um and so i found out that there was a local 50 mile around here um on you know my local terrain it was on the lakefront path so I thought, you know what, I'm going to just sign up and, and see how this goes. So I went online and looked for, you know, a 50 mile training plan and I stuck to it. Um, and I, I got there and I noticed that it was a very, very tiny crowd <laughs> as I thought there might be, but I would say maybe, you know, 80 people at the start line and, and that might be pushing it. Um, and what really what I really loved about that day was just the the community there, the people, everyone there wants you to finish and they will do everything they can to help you through the race at every aid station along the, the race. So those four out and backs. Each one was about 12 and a half miles to equal 50. But at every aid station, the volunteers were so helpful and so encouraging and motivating. Um, I just didn't get that from, um, a, you know, it's totally different at the Chicago Marathon because you're just flying by grabbing cups of water and you're off. But in an ultra, you 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 at interact with these people and they'll, you know, say things to you or ask, what do you need? Can I refill your water bottle for you? Um, which, you know, in these greater distances is very helpful when you can't figure out how to use your hands. Um, so there's something about that community of an ultra that I just really loved and really gravitated towards. And then it wasn't until later that I, I found um, trail races around the Chicago area and I decided to sign up for those. And I just fell in love with it even more. Just being out in the woods and, and a lot of the time being by yourself because there is a, such a smaller crowd at these races. Um, just that environment and being by yourself and motivating yourself and going through those highs and lows and ultras, um, I've just fell in love with. And I'm you know still doing it today four, four years or so later. But yeah, it's so interesting because I've heard similar descriptions um, from a lot of ultra runners about their love for the sport. And oftentimes you hear this exact same this exact same kind of description in that it's kind of like a paradox in that you have 
this idea of, hey, I love it because of the community, but I also love it because it's a solo venture. <laughs> so it's a, at the same time, you're kind of grasping both ends there. Um, and it's such an interesting thing. So, so for you, what about the solo element really drew you in? You know, I've always been the type who likes training by myself. I would say 99% of the runs that I do are by myself. Um, and I enjoy it because, you know, what I do every day is it, in my, in my, um, career is I talk to people. I'm constantly writing. I'm constantly on conference calls or in meetings. I'm on Zoom calls these days. Um, and then when I'm home, you know, I'm, I'm doing other things. I'm doing errands. You know, there's always this kind of go, go, go mentality and, um, lifestyle. But to me, running is that time that I have to myself that I can finally be with my own thoughts, that I can process the day. I can meditate. Um, but it's really that, that moment for myself where I can be mindful of, of everything that I'm thinking or everything that I'm feeling. And I love that. Um, you're able to do that, that exact same thing when you're in a, a trail race, but you know, you're out in the woods and you're supported. So you don't have to, you know, support yourself when you're doing these long, um, or you don't have the support when you're doing these long races by or long training runs by yourself. But it's nice to have that support when you're in a trail race so that you can go these longer distances um, to experience those same feelings of mindfulness and just being by yourself. There's just something about, especially being out on the trail and out in nature where, you know, just being one with those elements just makes you feel more whole, or at least me, more whole as a person. Um, and I never really knew that or knew that I needed that until I started training more out on the trails by myself. But it's a very, very interesting sport, but it also just, just feels so natural too, in a very strange, <laughs> strange way. So what races did you have on the calendar for 2020 that are no longer happening or are not happening in the traditional format? Oh, man. Well, I did get one race under my belt this year, and that was in February. I did the, the Jackpot 100 um, out in Las Vegas, and it was this two-and-a-half-mile loop for 100 miles. Um, so I got one in. But after that, I was supposed to run actually this weekend – the Ice Age Trail 50 miler, um, which is up, up in Wisconsin. It's like two, two hours away. But it's one of the oldest ultras in the country. Um, and it's, it's, it's another great event where the, the atmosphere is just so welcoming and encouraging. And there's people who come back from like 10 years ago when they first ran it. So that's a great event. Um, I was also supposed to run, um, just a local, another, Chicago 100 around the city that I was going to do with a bunch of people. Last year, I did it by myself. And it was kind of the inaugural Chicago 100 because I just, you know, I just decided to do it. So I did it. And then people said, I would love to do that. So I, originally, I was planning to do it with a, a large group of people. And, you know, we'd all just kind of, you know, follow this route, and it would be a race, but I don't see that happening anymore. And then next would be the Tahoe 200, which hasn't officially been canceled yet. I'm still training as if it's going to happen. Um, and the start date for that is September 11th, which is a funny date to start a race. But um, we haven't gotten the official cancellation notice of that one. So TBD. But then after that, um, nothing else in the books. I am supposed to maybe um, crew a friend who's doing a backyard ultra in, in June out in New York. Um but still also TBD on that one too, just because of the circumstances. 
All right. So, you know, looking at, you know, what you've been doing from a running perspective now, you said you're still training as if the 200 is going to happen and you're still doing amazing <laughs> things from a running perspective. Uh, so let's talk about that. So these, these races were canceled. You're, you know, they didn't cancel your running. They just canceled your races. So when you decided, all right, I'm going to continue to run, I'll continue to run in a similar way than I had before. What were then the choices that you made to make that happen? Not just from a daily training, um, you know, just in your normal running and normal daily training, but also trying to create events or work with events that were created virtually to kind of get that same feeling that you would get from a traditional race. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, a lot of races for obvious reasons are getting canceled and then the, you know, the race company or race director is turning those events into virtual races just to kind of create that same feeling or at least that same motivation that runners look for and almost need to get themselves on a, out on a daily basis. And, um, I think it's it's so great to see so many people, you know, still keeping up with their training plans, whatever they may be, or still getting out there for a virtual race. Um, because it's so different, you know, the atmosphere of going to a race is, it's just something else, you know, all the people there who've trained just as hard as you have approaching the same starting line as you are going the same route, going through the same energy, those high and lows of the race, no matter the distance. And then finishing together, there's something special in that entire experience. So um, for people to be doing that on their own, just going out their front door, you know, marking the sidewalk with a start line with chalk and just saying, all right, this is where I start and I'm going to just go. So there's something just very interesting about them, something that I love. Um, with the Chicago 100 last year, I did that because the weekend before I was supposed to run and complete this 24 hour race. And then I wanted to run a hundred miles, uh, about 18 miles in. I just, I, I still couldn't take in any food or water. Something was wrong and it just didn't feel safe anymore. So I called the race at 18 miles. And as I was, uh, driving back home from that race, I thought in my head, you know what, if I'm okay next week and you know, things check out all right with my doctor, I'm trained for this. I'm motivated for this. I'm just going to go run a hundred miles around Chicago. And so that next weekend, I, you know, planned my route, I packed my bags, I made my aid station food, I made my apartment, my aid station, um, set out and there was a lot more to it. Um, but I did it. And it was the motivation came from this redemption of that race not happening the weekend before. And I think nowadays, you know, with these races being canceled, or that the virtual race is happening. For instance, I did the the Air Vipe Strong, the 100-miler, what was that, two, three, three weeks ago maybe? Um, I turned it into Strava art, so that was my motivation to finish that. <laughs> I couldn't wait to talk to you about this. Let's talk about that because cause that was yes. like, all right, like in, in for a dime, in for a dollar. Like not only are you going to run 100 <laughs> miles, like you're going to like literally turn it into a work of art, not metaphorically even, just literally on Strava. It was something else. Um, <laughs> let's talk about that, not only in terms of, you know, why and how, but just how logistically you make that work. Because I think that's something that a lot of people might struggle with when they do their own uh, solo marathons. Yeah, so logistically, there was there was a lot to it. I mean, because it wasn't only just planning to run 100 miles, which it, it ended up actually being like 135 
Um, but on Strava, it was 106 because in between all that, I still had to go back home, take my dog out, feed him, and then go back to where I pause my Garmin. And then keep going a little bit, go back home, take him out, feed him breakfast, and then walk back and start again. So there was that that I had to plan for. But then also the Strava art itself. I mean, that took me that took me like a week to to complete and finalize because you know, when you're setting up your Strava art, there's a couple pieces to the to the process. You first have to take a screenshot of your map and then you take that map or this is at least what I do. And then you take the map into Photoshop, doodle um the words or the art that you want to do. Get it to a point where it looks okay and then you're like, okay, there's a street there. I'm pretty sure there's a, a way I can get through there and make a straight line. But then you take what your doodle is and then you map it out and map my run. Um, this is the way that I found to be the easiest because then you can use the map my run app while you're out on your adventure to track where you are and make sure that you're going the right direction. Um, so I was mapping it out and um, making sure that there actually were streets where I thought there were streets. Um, that's probably the hardest part. Um, and one of the tricks I found is that if there isn't a street where you need to connect point A and point B, um, but you really need it to be there, <laughs> you pause your Garmin at point A and then you go around to where point B would be and then you start and it creates the straight line that you would need. And then you can, can continue on. But that's an easy way to get you know a more clear picture of your Strava art when you finish your run. Um, so logistically, that's how I planned for the Strava piece of it. But then also, um, as far as planning, you know, hydration and nutrition and, you know, with everything being closed, um, rightfully so, you also had to plan, you know, where a bathroom could be, especially in Chicago. There's, you know, not a lot of parks, there's not trails, it's all buildings and houses and whatnot. So I had to make sure that there were enough grocery stores around, um, just to make sure that there would be a place to go if I needed to go or to pick up water if I ran out of water. Um, because I knew a lot of places would be closed and it would be harder to pick up hydration. I didn't want to have to go into many businesses to take that risk upon someone else or myself for their health. Um, I actually did this run way, way dehydrated because (laughs) I probably should not have. Um, but it helped me only have to stop three times during the entire, um, 100. So that was helpful there. And usually I'm pretty good about not having to take in too much water or food. If I can, if I'm going out for a 20 mile run, I won't, I won't drink anything or eat anything. But if I know I'm going out for longer than that, then I'll invest, you know, earlier in the run for what I'll need later. So I'll drink water earlier for later. But, um, yeah, I think I, I knew what I wanted for food. I, I usually stick to Lar bars, RX bars, and these um, PB&Js that I make for myself. And then just water and maybe Tailwind, but I didn't do Tailwind for this 100. But um, I would say the hardest part of it all was just wanting to keep going, especially when I knew I had to pause at like 6 a.m., start walking back to my house, feed my dog breakfast and take him out for his morning walk and then go back to where I last stopped and then start it right at wherever that next letter was and then keep going again. But it was, it's funny when you do these virtual races, because, you know, usually when you, you know, you get close to that finish line, you can see it and there's that energy and and it almost makes you go faster than you you thought your body body possibly could. Um, But for me, I ended up finishing like, at a corner where someone was just walking their dog and someone else was just going out for a walk and they have no idea what I just did. (laughs) 
So you kind of have to, you have to be able to pep yourself up <laughs> for sure. Um, because nobody, like someone who's just driving has no idea what this person with a hydration pack on is doing, but they probably look crazy. And I'm sure I did, but it was a fun time. And I'm just very thankful that the weather held up because in Chicago, you never know what it could be in the springtime. <laughs> well, you know, poor, poor map my run. Like they literally have lost the branding war so badly that <laughs> that people are using map my run to create Strava art and not calling it map my run art. Like that's how bad they've yes. lost the running wars. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I would say that that, that came in clutch when I needed it the most for sure. <laughs> All right. So you you hinted at something right at the end there that was actually going to be my next question. And that is what people can expect when, you know, times get tough in their marathon and they almost certainly will for anybody at, at any level, um, especially if you're really trying to run as fast as you can for 26 miles, as opposed to, you know, hey, I'm going out, I'm running 26 miles, I'm going to enjoy myself, and I'm just going to enjoy my experience, right? That's That feels different than I'm going to try to run as fast as I can. There's different dietary needs in both of those cases and all of that. So let's just talk about a person who's really trying to either get a personal best or run to their current fitness level as best they can. In that situation, and we've all been there, you're going to have some serious struggles at certain points, not just physically, but I'm more thinking now mentally and emotionally. What are some of the things that you have learned to do in those moments to get you through them to the other side? Yeah, um, you know, those moments always come up, no matter the distance, um, short or long, 5K, 100 mile. Um, for me, I... I, if I'm in a really low point, I just, I stop and I just walk and I go, okay, if I can just keep walking just for a little bit, maybe I'll feel better and we'll just see how this goes. And usually, you know, give it some time, um, like a mile or so. And you kind of, you can come back around from it, um, just by feeling like, okay, I'm out here. I'm just going to keep doing this. I'll keep going. I also have a couple mottos that I'll say to myself. And one of them is you can do hard things. Um, I'll repeat that to myself as many times over as I need to, but it's just a reminder to myself that this is this seems really hard and this seems difficult and almost impossible, but you have everything within you. It's just going to take everything that you've got. Um, I like to cross the finish line, especially when you get into marathons or ultras with nothing left to give because that's when you know that you, you succeeded, you know, whether you, you got your personal best or or not, if you cross the finish line feeling like you had absolutely nothing left to give in that, then you won. You know, ultra runners are known for having to go through these sorts of things multiple times in races, whereas a marathoner might really experience that critical moment just once. Uh, and then they get through it, and then they're pretty close to the finish line. Usually these happening between miles either 18 to 22, roughly. Um, now, as someone who's experienced these over and over again at various dis various distances and in many different races, have you been able to draw on your past experiences of getting through those critical moments to help you get through future moments? Or is each one just kind of its new experience unique to itself? Yeah, I think anytime you get into that really low point, it might feel a little similar to the time that it happened before, whether it be in a race or a training run. 
Um, but there's always something new to it. And it's either it could be because you're in a different place that you were in the run as you as it happened before, could be a different feeling. Um, there's always that second guess that you have with yourself of am I injured? Am I not? Because you might be feeling just really sore or, you know, something might be hurting a little bit and you kind of have to assess yourself in that situation, whether, um, if it's just pain from, you know, the distance that you're doing and how hard you're pushing yourself or if, you know, you kind of have to be smart about it. But, um, yeah, I think every time you get into a low, or at least for me, I, I draw on to those experiences uh, in the past, whether it be a training run or a race. And I, I think through how I felt in that moment. And then I compare it to how I felt when I kept going. And you have to remember that like when you, when you get through those moments and you kept going and you got to the end, how worth it that was. And I, there's always that, that saying that I see a lot of marathoners, um, will either write on a sign or on their shirt and it's always, but did you die? <laughs> and it's so true. It's like, you can get to those points where you're like, God, this is the worst. Like, I feel like crap. My legs feel like lead. My stomach is just no good, but you can keep going. There's always something within you, whether it be mental strength or, or physical strength, there's always more to give. Um, and that's when I really like to turn to my why, you know, why do I run on a Tuesday at 5am for 15 miles? Or why do I get up for these crazy long distance races that I pay for to suffer for 100 miles? And for me, it's it's to really, you know, to to respect my body as far as like what it can do. For so many years, I lived a very, very unhealthy lifestyle and didn't even consider running for anything, even if I was being chased, I ate crappy food. Um, I was just in a bad place. And it wasn't until I moved to Chicago that I picked up running and, and lost a ton of weight. I got really healthy. Um, and decided I decided to live, basically, I decided to give my body a second chance. And so um, when I get into those low moments in a training run or a race, I like to, to remember my why is, is why I'm doing this. And that's to, to, you know, give my body it's what it deserves. And that's pushing it to the limits and um, just living, living every day, basically. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I really appreciate you explaining your why in particular. Last question before we get going, I, I wish we could talk longer, but with this being a three part episode, <laughs> I am kind of capped on time. Um, so last thing, you mentioned your Las Vegas Ultra uh, earlier this year, it being a two and a half mile loop you know, running it, you know, in infinity amount of times, probably is how it felt during, <laughs> during your experience. Absolutely. There's going to be a lot of people doing their, their virtual marathons in a very similar way, either because that's how they're going to set up their bottle stations, or they're worried about being too far away from a bathroom, or maybe just from a safety perspective, they just want to be near their house. So what, what are some things that you learned from an ultra like that, that you can impart on the folks who might be running uh, in a similar way? Uh, this coming weekend? Yeah, I would say, for some reason, I just constantly sign myself up for these very shoot, short loop distances. Uh, I don't know why, but there are a lot of benefits to it. I would say one being logistically, it's so much easier to plan when you can keep going back to one spot over and over again in your race. Um, and just like you said, you know, when it comes to filling up water or having your own aid station, that really comes in um, and key when you're planning these, these long distances like marathons and ultras. Um, it also, it gives you some kind of peace of mind where, you know, 
if something goes wrong or something is just not right or it's it's a bad race, you're never too far from home. You're never or wherever your home base might be. So having that peace of mind to just keep going, knowing, you know, if it's a two and a half mile loop, you're like, okay, you're if you're back at the start, you can say to yourself, just two and a half more miles, just just three more miles, just four more miles, whatever that distance is. And you keep doing it and you keep doing it. Um, that's something I like to say to myself when, you know, even I'm just training is like, okay, just give it two more miles, just three more miles. And just really breaking it down into those small chunks, which is also another benefit, I think, to doing small uh, looped races is it's such a much more attainable goal when you break it down into these smaller chunks um, versus like, you know, if you're setting, say you're setting yourself up, say, I'm going to lose like 20 pounds this year, saying I'm going to lose 20 pounds this year might feel a little daunting. But if you say I'm gonna lose two pounds this month, that seems more doable. So, you know, reaching those goals and reaching the next one, and the next one, it just builds this momentum that keeps you going. And I think that's very, um, that's very pliable to running races virtually or real um, as well. You know, when you break it down into these small bits, it makes it so much more attainable for you to get from the start line to the finish line. And I think that's what really helped when um, my friend and I did this jackpot 100 out in Vegas is that two and a half mile loop. There was one aid station, but you, you kept going back to it. And that was all your, always your home base. Um, so I think, you know, a couple of, of reasons make these the the reason to do a looped course is is so beneficial um, to finishing your goal. I love it. Callie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hello, Nate, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. I'm excited to have you on. Shoot, man, I think it was about a month ago. You went out and did something very few people have ever done. You went and set a PR in the marathon while doing it solo, kind of a virtual marathon, so to speak. And now that you know, solo racing is all that we have at this point in time. I was really excited to talk to you because that is something not many people have done in their lives. So uh, before we dive into you know the, the logistics surrounding that effort and all of that, what was the um, what was your decision making process like in terms of you know deciding to do this solo and to do it with kind of the gusto that you ended up approaching it with? Well, I had been training probably since December uh, using one of Hal Higdon's programs um, and uh, the Advanced Marathon 2. And uh, I knew that the Carmel, Indiana Marathon was going to be pretty flat. I felt like um, I felt like I was getting some good miles in. And I thought I'd already been training. Once they postponed it, I, I felt like I was in my you know fitness level and ready to go. So I just it went for it. So how did your your solo marathon date correspond with the date of the marathon that you had planned on running? Yeah, it was the it was the exact date. Oh wow! Uh, so I I think it was four four. I think was the date. Okay, so when you started your marathon build using the Hal Higdon plan, Hal actually was on the podcast about six weeks ago. What an awesome guy! Um, you know, so many people who listen to this show and you know, tens of thousands more people, uh, maybe hundred thousands more people around the world have used his plans at some point or another. Um, you know, just a total legend. When you were starting this process building for Carmel Marathon, 
what was your your goal or what were your goals heading into it? I, I've I mean I've been trying to get over that first um, my first marathon in Columbus, Ohio was my my PR and I just couldn't get back to uh, I got really close a couple times but I was hoping to get under six uh, or two forty eight like a six uh, fifteen pace and um, and so I was I was working with another guy that ran at DePaul. University of Chicago, and he was really kind of pumping me up for, hey man, you can definitely get under 245. Um, kind of had a plan in mind at, at what to do the first half in, and then uh, just hope for the best, hanging on on the second half of the marathon. So after that first marathon, when you you know 248 for a first marathon is absolutely legit. I mean, you see a lot of runners even high-level runners who had, didn't run that in their first effort. And that was back in 2011, almost 10 years I mean, almost ten years ago. So what has happened kind of in that gap period between 2011 and now that kind of halted your progress from improving over time or even just kind of bettering that time? Yeah, I, I, I love my kids and to death, but, uh, you know, getting less than six hours of sleep a night and trying to um, do effective uh, – you know, running plans is, and, and you're, you're also juggling life and work and trying to fit it in with your, your partner. And when, when it works to run, um, this, my youngest one is about to turn four. So sleeping better, you know, I don't feel as bad leaving and going out for a two or three hour run, you know? So I think, I think that, um, and then just kind of finding, uh, finding the plan and, and making, making it work because, um, it's easy to have the plan in front of you and then you don't get, you know, a great day or two or three days that come together and it just throws a wrench in it. seems like. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that the truth? And as you were going through this period of time and continuing to, to race and train all of that, what importance did you put on the marathon as opposed to just doing other races? Like if, you know, you get to the point as, as busy parents where it's like, Hey, maybe we can't put the mileage in that we want to, or even more importantly, especially for marathon training, we just can't sit out and run for hours at a time. What was it like in terms of trying to decide what races you wanted to focus on? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I tried to stay fairly local, um, not having to fly anywhere if possible uh, again with the family, but, so we've done, you know, Cincinnati has a great marathon here, uh, the Flying Pig. I've done that a couple times. Um, gone up to Cleveland and Pittsburgh, Louisville. I did Asheville, uh, North Carolina last year, which was amazing. Um, so I, I try to do one a year if if I can fit that in. Uh, and then in between, I like trail running around here or just some 5Ks and 10Ks in the area. All right. So the marathon was kind of the, the main focus the whole time, even though it was kind of hard to train the way you would ideally like to. Yeah, I think I think it's just nice to have um, brings me back to those days in high school where you had, um, you know, weeks of preparation uh, before a game or you have I have an Excel spreadsheet of Hal Higdon's plan and I kind of take off the days and you get excited about, you know, going to go out there and do a tempo run or um, try to plan to find somebody over the weekend, to get in 15 or 16 miles. So it just, you know, helps mentally, um, prepare. Yeah. So with the Hal Higdon plant, I, oh, I gotta, 
and kind of figure out how you approach it. Because so many people follow his plans, but a lot of people also kind of like use it as a starting point, right? They, they get it and then they'll kind of tailor it to their needs or slight variations or sometimes they're like, oh man, I forgot to do that. and I got to figure this out now. So how did you approach it in terms of how strictly did you follow the plan as opposed to figuring out what works best for you and using it as kind of a, a rough outline? I've kind of been using those plans at, since after the the first marathon I ran, um, and I, I'm pretty loose in using the force and just kind of trusting that um, I can make it through the marathon. Uh, so the first, uh, the second marathon I did was Boston in 2013, and um, I kind of took a loose approach and was just going to go out and have fun. Um, and and I kind of blew up um, on the hills and uh, hamstrings and everything. So I, I realized that I didn't train enough. So after that, I, I looked at it a little bit more seriously, but I still, I float days around um, to whatever the schedule, our schedule here at home works with, um, you know, and I, and I know that if I don't get a, uh, you know, the best long run in, I can, you know, next week I can step it up a different way or, um, if that makes sense at all, it, 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 it's pretty loose. And I also, um, this year was the year that I, I talking to the guy from DePaul again was, he was mentioning how important it was to get the day before the long run, um, really get a good workout in. So your legs are tired for the, the long run the next day. So I, I was doing better with that this year and I felt, um, I felt good about it. And like I said, I was sleeping better through the night. So I felt like I was trained pretty well. Yeah, that's a great trick for busy people who really can't like dive in to have like, you know, constant two and a half hour long runs by putting in, you know, a good, you know, hour and a half the day before, you know, it's not exactly the same stimulus, but it, it can, it can replicate a lot of it. Yeah. And I, I didn't, uh, I should have said before, I didn't run in high school. I played soccer. Um, and I really didn't enjoy running for the sake of running until I was in the army and uh, realized that I was pretty fast. And then um, my wife and I moved here to Cincinnati and we saw these other people out running and, you know, saw these five K's like, Hey, we should try to sign up for some of those and see, uh, see it works. So all these plans, you know, looking at his, I really have to read through like, what is a tempo run? Um, You know, what is my race pace and hill workouts? I, I didn't know what any of that was. Yeah, man. Sounds like you're going to be in a, once we get these races, you know, officially being booked out and you can continue to get a little bit more, a little bit more sleep on your hands with the kids continuing to grow. Um, maybe you'll be in a whole, totally different world, you know, once we, once we get going again. Um, so, all right, approaching race day. This is, you know, the key thing you're approaching race day. You're, you're working with this individual uh, who's, who ran into Paul and obviously is a really good sounding board for you. And you had, a lot of marathon experience over the last decade, you know, being in relatively similar shape, seemingly, you know, a, a lot of a lot of these years. So, what kind of fitness did you think you were in as race as a race day approach? Yeah, I was really hoping to um, you know stay right around six or six oh five pace per mile, um, and I, I found a flat stretch of, uh, a paved trail, like a bike trail by us. And again, talking with him and another running friend about 
well, how do I, how do I logistically go into this? Because, you know, do I just run out 13.1 miles and, and then turn around or, um, that quickly got squashed. My wife was like, you're not, you're not, I, I need to be able to know that you're okay. So don't run out 13 miles and hope for the best. So the, the running friends, you know, and I decided, uh, there was a four mile stretch that I knew I was comfortable with and it, it's fairly flat. I mean, it's, um, right along a river. So, um, that seemed like the best option that I could set up a, a drink table at one at both ends and, um, have some, uh, like some cliff blocks there for me. So, um, it kind of the days leading up when they canceled everything or postponed everything, I started, you know, looking at the weather and, uh, getting that plan in mind. All right. Let's talk about pacing because this is something that I think people can approach as a positive or negative, right? The positive is that because it's just you out there, you know, you can really set your own pace and you're not going to be influenced by other people. Like for you, if you're in a marathon, considering your speed and say it's more low key marathon, you might be looking around and be like, Hey, can I win this? Right? Like, is there a chance that I can come in first and that can alter your pace strategy? And a lot, and you know, there's other people who look at this like almost the other way where they wouldn't be, um, able to run with a pace group or having a bunch of people who they know really well, who they can kind of feed off of. So what was it like for you? You go into this race, you have, you know, a rough estimate about the kind of pace you want to go in. Did you find pacing difficult? Yeah, especially, um, especially right as I'm getting close to the turnaround for each, you know, the four, four mile turnaround. Um, I just noticed I'd be dipping, you know, five, 10 seconds slower than what I wanted. And then, you know, as soon as I made that turnaround, got a little sip of water, um, you felt this burst of energy, you know, and then all of a sudden you're running too fast and you have to kind of dial it back a little bit. But, um, Again, I'm, I was kind of dodging uh, traffic, uh, bikers and um, walkers, and everybody's trying to keep their distance at the same time with uh, the COVID-19 uh, dilemma. And so the first half going in, I, I wanted to try to get as close to 6, 6.05, but not go any faster. And then, like I said, hope for the best once I got around 13 miles, just try to be happy with six to six fifteen. If I feel good, you know, go a little bit faster. And, um, the, I think for every marathon and whatever is the old adage was just to, after 20, it's you know, just a crapshoot, I guess. You're just hoping for the best, hang in there and finish. All right. In previous marathons, have you had a specific point in the race where you usually, start to kind of wear down or you hit that critical point where, you know, things aren't going well and you have a strong desire to slow down. Is there, is there a certain spot that usually that starts to come to fruition? Um, you know, each one's been a little bit different. Uh, I remember particularly, uh, here in Cincinnati, it was, uh, five miles from the finish, just making a turn and, uh, just noticed a, a weird, sensation in your ankle and you're like, Oh, I hope, hope this doesn't get any worse, but it's, it's been, um, you know, somewhere between 18 and 22. Uh, and then you're just hanging on and hoping, 
um, hoping for the best the last couple of miles. But I haven't, um, knock on wood, I haven't had to stop any yet, which is good. Yeah, absolutely. And when you get to that point where it, and all marathoners know that feeling of just absolute dread, you feel like you, you can and maybe even should stop, but you know you're going to regret it if you do, or at least slow down significantly. When you are in those points traditionally, are you more of an internal person or an external person? By that, I mean, do you need to search inside yourself to come out of it? Or do you like to kind of dissociate and try to take in your surroundings to try to spur you on? I guess it, it's probably the external, uh, not that you say it that way. Because I, you know, I kind of look to the people um, that are cheering cheering you on, maybe get a high five from a kid. Um, and just remember to breathe. Um, kind of focus on a point down the road and get to that point and then focus on the next point. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think external is probably a good way. I never, I never really thought about it. Now you're going to have me thinking about it the next marathon. <laughs> I guess there's <laughs> even more reason to do a big city marathon. Cause you know, you'll have a lot of people there. However, your last marathon was the exact opposite. There wasn't a whole lot of external stimulus. At least people focused on you, right? There's other people on the bike trail or things like that. So what did you do in this race when things kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, when the rubber met the road and you had to make some hard decisions? Yeah, that's a good question too. It, it, um, yeah, I think it was nice knowing that I had a four-mile stretch and then, uh, you know, I didn't go back. Um, I never thought I would like that because I, after running Boston – it just packed. I thought, Oh man, I can't ever do what, what can top that. And, uh, so this, this one probably was more internal and, um, just tried to enjoy it. It was a nice day in the sixties probably. And, um, then, you know, my wife and kids met me at mile 20 and then they drove back to the beginning of the race and met me at mile 24. Um, so that was nice. You, you, you just, tried to enjoy the the serenity of it all in this one all right so tell me about the last couple miles heading into the finish what 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 was that experience like and how were you able to perform uh i I tried to keep close to 630 or 645 pace and um just kind of grind it out i found i found some kid being paced by his dad on a bike who was running a half and so they took me through probably the last, I think that was 16. No, that that was probably 20 to 24. Now that I think about it. And, uh, they, he, the kid was probably running about a 645. So I was just trying to hang with him and catch a little bit of his, uh, what's it? The drag, I guess, uh, trying to hide behind him a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that makes sense. And, um, so that was nice. And I could kind of talk to somebody for a second. Uh, cause I hadn't, you know, usually when you're running a race, you might find somebody that's running your pace and you can kind of take your mind off the race for a second by finding out where they're from, but that helped. Um, and then like I said, I met my wife and kids at, at 24. Um, and then they were confused when I had to go back out for another mile point one. uh, turned around again. And then, uh, they had set up a little, um, little finish line for me to cross, which was very cool. And, you know, you just try to kind of um, grimace through everything at the last uh, <laughs> as you had to cross the finish line. And, you know, they, they know I'm pretty tough, but, you know, it's hard to convey you know, running 26.2 miles for 
to kid, you know, that distance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So tell us, man, what was the overall time? Yeah, it was uh, 245.14, um, which I was very excited about. I, was, I, um, I felt, you know, good halfway through. I thought, yeah, I'm at, uh, I think I was around a 120. And uh, so I thought I got a really good chance at beating 248. And, uh, you know, then, and then even that at, at mile 24, I knew, okay, as long as, as long as something doesn't really go bad, I can, I can do this. So that was, it was awesome. All right. So you were in the army, you know, let's talk about, you know, looking back on how this went, the logistics that went into it, you know, you kind of, you know, like so many people, this is your, was your first solo marathon and you can only you know, guess right so many times in terms of planning this sort of thing out. So if you're going to do an out of after action report, what were some of the things that you would change or modify if you had to do this again? Well, um, I, I think as far as eating right beforehand was important. I've been trying to have like steel cut oats before just to kind of keep me, um, full for the most part. Uh, it was nice having little water bottles at hand. I didn't have to worry about uh, cups to um, uh, try to, you know, squeeze and drink out of. I think the hard part is is knowing uh, what to wear exactly, and um, and plan on, uh, you know, how to dodge people on a solo marathon. You know, you're, you're trying to. They don't clear the roads at all, so you're you're weaving in and out of people. And, um, there was a stop sign that on the trail where you just had to hope that there was no cars and across, across uh, perpendicular in front of you. But other than that, I mean, I think it went as, it went as well as you can possibly have a, a solo marathon go. Now, did you run with music? No, I, I, I didn't. I, I try to, um, I try to just, uh, listen for everything around me. I, I, it's hard when you're running around somebody and you don't notice that they have um, something in their ears. You're trying to say, you know, you know, runner coming up, and then there's no, they're not responding. So I, uh, I kind of stopped that maybe three or four years ago, running with anything. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's a, that's why you see a lot of races. They don't they don't allow it either for that same reason, just to allow for for safety and not that not to say that the person with the music is doing anything wrong. But if you can't hear somebody, well, then you can't hear somebody. It's going to make for some for some sticky situations. Yeah, and there's yeah, I, I don't enjoy that sense. It's kind of a weird sensation jostling around in your ear a little bit. It's um, especially you're talking about for you know close to three hours for me personally. All right, so you had you had a huge day, and you did it without anyone around. And there's been it's been well chronicled that. Running with other people, especially people who are maybe a little bit faster than you, is a great way to kind of get to the next level as a runner, especially in a race, right? You have that ability to feed off the energy around you and to be dragged ahead by some people who are doing well. So now that you've done this, you set this new PR, it's been a long time coming. What are some of your goals moving forward? Yeah, I think you know, I reached out to the, my friend that helped me along the way. And he was really encouraging saying, yeah, you, you really on a, a good race day, if you had some, some people running with you, you could get under 240. Um, 
So that would, uh, if they do right now, the Carmel Indiana Marathon is tentatively October 17th, um, which, which is nice. It gives me some time to um, not beat myself up for a month or two before if I decide to train again for that. Um, it's a really flat course. Uh, I like running in the fall. But uh, training in you know June or July is gonna be tough if it if it comes down to it because it's you know getting up before the kids to get it so it's not balmy out. Um, so I'd like to. I mean, I'm I'm 37 now. Uh, I think I got a couple more years to to now break this to this uh, 245 PR. Yeah, absolutely. I I can see where your friends coming from, especially if you enter a pretty competitive race where there's a pretty good group of people in and around the pace that you're hoping to run. Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, that'd be nice. I, um, I think I really just wanted to get that, you know, uh, that first addiction, that first, uh, marathon. I was like, man, I can, I can beat this. I, you know, it was my first one. I, I know more now going into it, but, um, I didn't have, I didn't have uh, kids at the time. So it was, you know, it was easy to go out and run six to 10 miles a night. Now I don't have that option. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it being pretty frustrating. You'd be like, I've been running for 10 years and I can't beat my first one. Like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, I mean, I came, I came really close at Cleveland. Um, and then the last mile was uphill. So, I, you know, I had like, I think it was a 249.30 or something. It was like 45 seconds off. And then one year for the Flying Pig at mile four, we, we missed uh, a turn. Uh, we weren't the lead pack. We were that group behind the lead pack. And uh, we ended up running like 26 and three quarters of a uh, marathon. Oh. So, yeah, it's just, you know, not that, yeah, I'm always, I, I really enjoy everything about it, uh, the training and then, and then getting it done. Um, it's, it's just a, it's an accomplishment in its own right. So if it's, if it doesn't work out, you know, you still, ran a marathon right well said man absolutely nate thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it yeah it was great talking to you i appreciate it hello james and welcome back to the show thank you thank you thank you i'm I'm really excited to to be back on and, and chat some marathon talk Absolutely. And as uh, as everyone knows who's listened to the intro, we are down to it. We got the last race of the Rambling Runner uh, virtual race series. We got the marathon coming up this weekend. And hey, man, we got we got a lot of stuff to talk about from a race strategy standpoint for a lot of people. In addition to that, just what it takes to self-sustain um, the logistics of a solo marathon, whereas with the 5K, 10K and even half marathon, doing that solo really isn't that big of a deal because most people oftentimes will run those distances in training. If not distances, at least the, the equivalent time on feet, whereas with the marathon, it's a completely different venture. So that's kind of the agenda. Let's just pick it up where you want to take off in terms of how you would talk to athletes who are doing this. And I think you, I think you actually have athletes who are doing this. So what are some of the things that you're telling them? Well, so I've got, uh, I've got two athletes that are going to be competing in their own marathons this weekend. Uh, Dave Corbett has been with me for years. He's going for a lifetime best. He's not going to just try to, to run the marathon and just get the mileage done. He's actually going to go out there and try to break 240 for the first time ever uh, and run uh, over a four-and-a-half-minute personal best. Uh, he's, he's in great fitness. He's in great shape. 
and then there's Kate Landau, who, uh, like many, tens of thousands were going to be running Boston. Um, she, she has decided that she would like to, to partake in the marathon as well, the distance of it. Uh, not to race it all out, but to, just to have a really good effort over the distance. And we're going we're gonna to try to do something a little different with her, that, something that she's never been able to accomplish uh, because of the racing concept that she's always been a part of in marathons, is we're going to try to negative split the entire run. Um, so that if she accomplishes that, she feels good. That'll be the first time. Um, so both of my athletes should be well under two hours and 40 minutes. Uh, but that is a different environment than somebody that might potentially be out there for four and a half to five hours. Um, so the, the things that I'm going to talk to my athletes about is, um, number one, uh, making sure that they're safe with nutrition and hydration, uh, that they have their, their, their plan of attack uh, and that they are going to carry at least three or four gels on them at, at any given time um, so that they always have some sugar just in case something were to happen, they were to feel a little dizzy, uh, but also uh, that they're going to stash some water bottles along the way as well. Whether it be table set up or just some some water bottles that they they biked out there a day or two ahead of time, just off in, into the woods, um, I want to make sure that their hydration is is managed. All right, before we dive into the logistics, because this this could be a never ending podcast, just talk about marathoning logistics, even in the best case scenarios. Before we even get there, just quickly about Kate, because she had a unique perspective heading into Boston, actually similar to another one of your athletes, John Ranieri, who actually signed with Josh Cox today, I saw, which is obviously an exciting development for him and for you and everyone involved with McCurdy Trained. But with Kate, she even, she came on the show on uh, the Road to Olympic Trials podcast and said, that, hey, I'm running the Olympic Trials. I expect to, to run hard, but maybe 90 to 95% because I really want to give my full effort in Boston. And that was that was her her plan of attack. I know John had a similar plan of attack. And here she is running a marathon later in the spring and obviously not the one that she had planned on. So when you're talking to an athlete of her caliber, you know, one of the top, you know, t- you know two dozen marathoners in the country, roughly, who has their plans extinguished in such a dramatic way, how do you keep their men kind of the mental side going um, as opposed to the physical side? Well, Kate's an interesting subject for that question because her life is so different. Uh, she's in the healthcare service. She's a physician's assistant. She's working in a, in a facility. And she's in charge of some serious shit. Uh, some of the decisions she makes uh, could potentially change uh, lives. Uh, and, and it's very, very real. So running for her, it's an outlet. It's not as serious as many of the other professionals have on their plate. Um, it, it's a complete outlet for her. She goes into these events in a different mindset altogether. Um, Kate still is planning on running Boston. That's still the, the game plan. Uh, we're we're looking forward to that opportunity, but we definitely took a blow. I think as as everybody else did, um, and and she her hours started to change a little bit, and um, childcare was available, and then it wasn't available because uh, the, the 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 places where she could take her 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 daughter Grace uh, were no longer accepting um, because they closed down. So for her. 
manipulating her schedule. She's she's running maybe 60 to 70% of the mileage that she had been running. And she already wasn't running that much to begin with because of her schedule. Um, so oddly enough, it all those adversities have actually helped her feel more fresh. And I, I'm a little baffled by it because she's doing some things in workouts that I just – I can't really comprehend. Um, and we're not really trying to. She's just going out there, having fun, blowing off some steam – and feeling good. And when she doesn't feel good, she just doesn't do the workout, which is few and far between these days. Um, so, so for her, uh, she, she's using this as fuel to, to relieve some, some, some work stress. I, I believe that anybody in the healthcare uh, uh, service is, is really feeling right now. All right. So before we dive into logistics in a solo marathon, what are just some tips and advice that you like to give to marathoners, you know, the dedicated amateur runners, you know, the, you know, the runners who listen to this podcast, a lot of them are coached by McCurdy trained coaches, in fact. So what are just some general rules and strategy that you'd like to give to people as they prepare for a marathon? Well, let's break that down into, before we get into solo, let's talk about just regular marathoning. What's available and, and what they can do. Number one, obviously, we want to make sure that they're well-fed and well-hydrated in the days and weeks leading up to the race. So that's going to be very important. Uh, a generally, uh, a runner's diet is going to be around 60 65% carbohydrates anyway. So that we, we always hear about carb loading the, the night before. Honestly, as long as you're eating 60 to 65% carbohydrate and a little less protein, a little less fat than you normally would, just a little bit more carbs three or four days leading into your long run, um, your, your marathon effort, you're going to be, you're going to be just fine. Um, we want to make sure that they have a good breakfast that morning, maybe two and a half, three hours ahead of time. Uh, maybe a gel right before, like 15 minutes before the, the gun goes off, so to speak, and that they are taking their nutrition by time and not by miles. Uh, every 25 to 30 minutes, they're taking in a gel about a hundred calories or so. Um, so that's in a normal situation, but we are far from normal right now. Now, everything I just said can still be utilized in terms of the carb concept, eating 60 to 65% of their calories from carbohydrates and having a really good breakfast that morning, waking up two and a half to three hours to get that done. One thing they get a chance to do is choose the day that they get to, to, to do their race. You don't have to go on a Saturday morning if it's 20 miles an hour wind and the next day is going to be calm. So you can choose whichever day uh, has the better weather, which I think is a really big advantage. Um, but you still want to kind of follow those rules of nutrition the morning of. Uh, you want to make sure that you have your gels. And uh, like I said about David and Kate, uh, I, would, I would bring three to four gels on you and for safety's sake, I wouldn't do an out and back. Uh, we're used to, in marathon settings, uh, having tables set up every five or six miles, every, an aid station every two or three, even a medical tent. And, and, and those are there for a reason because people do need them from time to time in these big races, uh, even in the small ones. So what you don't want to experience is that you're 18 miles out from your home or wherever you parked your car, and now you can't walk because you, you tripped on a pine cone or you stepped on a curb. Wrong. So what I would recommend is, is have smaller loops of maybe four or six miles, right? 
uh, and then do those loops over and over again to get your distance done. So it's a much safer environment. I think that would be a big, big advantage to be able to do. And I wouldn't make it too hilly either. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I really wanted to talk to you about this, just the route in general. And you touched on a lot of good points there. And you kind of hinted at one right at the end as well, that, you know, that four to six mile range. And I would say if you can have it go by your home. Because not only, um, you know, if you, if you have family or people you live with, they can kind of have a table out there ready for you and can stock it just in case. Or if stuff gets blown away, they can kind of reset it. But one thing that you didn't mention that, you know, we've all experienced and shoot, I had a, a, a conversation with Des Linden just a couple of weeks ago and she was recapping Boston 2018. And one of the, the, the <laughs> one of the lasting moments in that race is, is the bathroom run. And that's one thing that, you know, if you're going on this, if you're doing your solo marathon and all of a sudden your stomach starts jiggling and you know what's coming, you know, having that outlet ahead of you is certainly going to give you a peace of mind as opposed to saying, again, you're a long way from home and you're not near a business. What am I going to do now? Yeah, I've unfortunately been on the receiving end of that in workouts and it is an uncomfortable position to be in. Sometimes you make it, sometimes you don't. And, uh, I've, I've had both of those experiences. <laughs> um, yeah, that is a very valid point and one to always keep in mind. Um, that's why I, I suggest having him maybe if you're going to plan on doing this in the morning, uh, generally that's uh, a better time to, to get a, certainly as we're in May and, and, and depending on where you are around the world, uh, the, the days are heating up. Um, you, you're probably going to do this in the morning. Um, I would say maybe consider having a larger lunch and not as big of a dinner the night before your attempt gives your body a little bit more time to digest that fuel. Um, that way, when you wake up in the morning, you can kind of process a a bit of that out of your system. Yeah. So one thing that's going on right now is that depending on where people live, the, the weather can change drastically. Right, as we were talking before we went live, that up in New England this weekend, it's going to be close to freezing, which is crazy because it was seventy degrees two days ago. Whereas you know, in, the, in parts of the the southern part of the southern of the country, and people listen to this podcast all over the world, that it might be significantly hotter than that. In the dew point, I had one runner who ran the other day uh, with someone I coach, and they ran in a dew point of seventy four, which is like you just throw the pace Ooh. out the window at that point, yeah. and. Let's talk a little bit about that in terms of what weather can do to someone's pacing and how that might affect what time of day they want to run. Sure, absolutely. Um, I personally am a, I suffer greatly in, in humid weather. Um, my body has an adverse reaction to it. I recognize this, which is why I try to cho- choose cooler races. Um, I've even lost seven pounds in 40 minutes in a seven mile race. Um, so, for me, if, if I were doing this, I would choose the, the, the coldest part of the day by far. And generally, it's going to be about 4.30 to, to 8 o'clock in the morning. I would, I'd want to get my run done by 8.30, I would say. Um, absolutely. Um, but in terms of weather, uh, if you're talking about pacing, if you're going out there to just run and get the distance done, then try to be as comfortable as you can for that, the entirety of the run. Um, you know, always being at a conversational pace, all of that. But if you're going out there to be uh, performing, uh, to run your best marathon, that's where it gets tricky. 
because even in the best conditions, your body can add adverse reactions. Um, so I, I would say really understand what the highs of the day are going to be, but also what the, the weather is going to be the, for the two and a half to, to four or five hours you're going to be running. Take a look at an hour by hour to, to look at the dew points as well as the temperature to make sure you're making safe choices. You know, that's, again, one of the biggest issues with, with running a solo marathon is are you safe? If something were to happen, do you have help nearby? Um, I, I, would, I would even suggest for, for some of the runners that are going to be on their feet for quite a long time, over four hours, uh, maybe even three and a half, that they wear a running vest. So they're always going to have hydration on their body. Right. So one of those, like those Nathan contraptions that you see ultra marathoners wear and, and things, yeah. like, things like that. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we're missing is aid stations. Take, you know, give yourself the opportunity to drink whenever you want to drink, not because you're three miles away from a planted water bottle. That, that might be a very valid option for so many um, to, to ensure that they're, they're staying safe. You know, you're out there for three and a half, four hours, four and a half hours on a 65, 70 degree day, uh, morning, I should say that that's going to get really warm as the days go on. Um, and where you might stop at a water table at a race, you're not going to have that opportunity. So it might be a very good idea to, to have a, a, a water vest on you. All right. Let's talk about dew point and how that's why, why that's the, the proper measure to think about, in terms of you know weather related to you know in terms of you know affecting people's performance and the varying degrees that um, different dew points can have uh, on, on someone's performance. Like I just mentioned before a dew point of seventy four affecting somebody like again from my understanding is and please correct me if I'm wrong if a dew point is seventy or above it's almost like, all right, like this is going to have a drastic effect on you and you almost have to stop looking at whatever pacing strategy you may have come in with. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think there are some bodies that react a little better in a dew point uh, that's, that's really high, uh, but it's always going to affect somebody. Um, it's just a matter of how much. Uh, and the longer you are out there, the worse it is going to get. So if you're out there for two hours and 10 minutes and your dew point is 65, it's not going to affect you the same way if you're out there for four and a half or five hours and the dew point 65. The longer you are exposed to some adverse conditions, it's almost exponential. Uh, so it's really important. One of my athletes, Rhonda, um, uh, turned me on to the idea of, of using salt tabs in these really long runs. Um, she puts them in a water bottle and or, or she keeps it a little – little plastic bag and she'll, she'll use some salt tabs or electrolyte tabs. Uh, every time she takes a gel, she has a little bit of that as well. Um, just to kind of keep her on the safe side, but essentially this, uh, when you have a really high dew point, well, let me go back. People confuse humidity with dew point and it's, it's a, it's all, it's a terrible mistake to make because you can have a really high humidity level, but the air can still feel crisp. It can still feel feel light. Uh, they feel that out in San Francisco all the time. Humidity levels can be 98 or 100%, but the air is crisp. It's because you're running in a cloud. That has nothing to do with the dew point. The dew point is the relative uh, uh, moisture in the air. And when that is equal to the air temperature, 
uh, you're going to have some adverse conditions if you're above 65, 70 degrees, 75, 80 degrees. Uh, because what happens is your body will not be able to cool itself down. Normally, when we sweat, the sweat will evaporate off our skin or just kind of fall off. It's how we cool our body. But when the dew point's really high, well, our body isn't, or the, the, the sweat isn't going to evaporate. It's going to stay wrapped onto our skin. And now we're getting warmer and warmer and warmer. So our body temperature is rising. Our heart rate is rising. Uh, and if you're not careful, dehydration can set in really, really fast in a really high dew point if you're, if you're running for a long period of time. All right. Let's talk about before the race. I mean, we should have touched on this before, but in terms of, again, people might be hearing this, you know, four to six days before they run their marathon. What are some tapering strategies that you like to employ with your athletes during that time frame? Oh, well, you know, nothing really changes, right? We might change the runs from, from miles to time. You know, we go out there and just go for 45 to 55 minutes. Don't worry about how many miles you cover. Just run easy for time. That way they're not working too hard uh, and they just and they still get the same amount of steps. They still get the same amount of time on their feet as they normally would. Um, one of the things that I would like to do generally for someone racing the marathon is give them the last hard workout about 10 to 14 days away. Uh, so it, it still gives them some sharpness, but that's not the last speed session. It's just the last major session. Uh, I'll throw in maybe a little bit of exposure to marathon pacing for about five, 10 minute blocks, um, or even half marathon pacing for about three to four minute blocks. Uh, and one of the things I like to do, one of my, my workouts, uh, is five by mile at marathon, maybe six days out with a walk rest in between, uh, and maybe, um, eight to 10 by, by 10 K, uh, for a minute. Uh, just to sharpen up the legs about three or four days before the marathon takes place. Uh, again, with a walk rest. We're not trying to give overexposure. Uh, we are just trying to wake up the body, keep the central nervous system engaged. Because if you go too light, all of a sudden you, you wake up one morning and you feel really flat. And you just don't feel like you have the legs. All right. That makes a lot of sense. And I know that's one thing that a lot of people like to think about, but at the same time, it can be a little individualistic. Some people like to get in their own little taper. They feel like what works for them. And when it comes to tapering, so much of it can just be mental. Like you feel like if you're confident in your taper, oftentimes that's, that's good enough because, you know, that, that aspect is so important. And especially with certain tapers, as long as you're decreasing the mileage to the point where you're not overexerting yourself leading up, you know, the feeling that confidence, feeling that, you know, that just overall, I can do this type mantra feeling can sometimes supersede the physical benefits in terms of just workout differentiation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what we what we get it can be an advantage in a major race where we're where we're surrounded by so many people, um, but that could also be a hindrance. One of the things that we saw with the the rambling runner half, the ten k, the five k is we saw loads of athletes of all walks of life, not just our own athletes, but everywhere, uh, just setting lifetime PRs, which was awesome. But one of the the the, the most uh, uh, the the biggest factor to that I think is that people weren't racing anybody else, they were just going out there doing what they were capable of. 
And that's what this marathon presents as well for those who are choosing to do it. Is this allows you to do what you are capable of. You don't have 500 people within within a, a, a handshake uh, uh, wrapping you up and trying to run too fast too soon. You All you got to do is just go out there and do what you're capable of and make a good decision about your pacing, about your strategy. Um, and you don't, you won't get wrapped up in everybody else's race. You won't be worried about those things. Uh, I think that that's going to help a lot of people. Uh, I, I'm actually not really tapering Kate for this at all. Um, just the other day, Kate ran, oh gosh, she ran 16 miles at about a 552 average. Uh, well, seven days later, she's going to go out and run her marathon. Right. Well, hey, and there's there's examples of this everywhere, right? Of of yeah. athletes who who don't taper, and obviously there's there's not tapering, and then there's not tapering, right? There's like there's the there there are there are dra- there are drastic examples of those as well. I think uh, Dave Scott, I think it was in 1993 uh, at the Japan Ironman, where the day before the race, I think he did a 70, 78 mile ride. At race pace oh, the gosh. day before an Ironman, yeah, <laughs> and, was, and then he went and did the then he did, did the Ironman at eight oh one, gosh, and uh, you know so there's there, there are you know crazy feats like that. Now with all of that being said, you did talk about pacing here, and I think it provides a unique opportunity, especially on a topic that I've heard you wax poetic or <laughs> or profane about on occasion, um, and that is <laughs> and that is pace groups. You know, I, there are people who who I, who I coach, and plenty of people who listen to this podcast who have been pacers for marathons and who you know have affinity for doing it, and, and they love being part of the community. However, pace groups are, while sometimes have the best of intentions, aren't quite as useful in terms of how well they work for the athletes who are in them. And oftentimes, while it provides a security blanket for an athlete running a race, being Stepping outside of that pace group oftentimes could lead to a better performance. Absolutely, I, I agree with that one hundred percent. You you take an athlete who's who's a three thirty marathoner ability, but jumps into the three forty marathon pace group because it's their first marathon. They just want to get it done. They're likely not to have any issues unless something bad happens later in the race, like a GI issue or a cramp or something like that. But the pace for that athlete is not going to be the issue. But you take a three-hour and 40-minute actual ability marathoner and you put them with a three-hour and 40-minute pace group, 99 out of 10 uh, – 99 out of 100 rather, uh, they're going to have some trouble because it, you shouldn't be running marathon pace right off the bat. It, it, it almost never works out. And what happens is the pace group might start off with 200 people and then it's down to 15 by the, by the time they get to the, to the finish line because it was just too fast too soon. So running solo, you don't, you don't get wrapped up in any of that. You get a chance to just ease into things. You get a chance to, to feel like this is just a training run where you just happen to run 26.2 miles. Right. And even, and that's in the best case scenario where oftentimes you'll see a pace group is led by an athlete who, you know, the whole idea here is that the athlete leading the pace group can do this pace no problem. That's why they're leading the pace group. (laughs) So oftentimes the first few miles are going out a little faster than they should just because this pace is so easy for them. 
And for them, they'll, they might get you home at exactly the right time, but doing it in that way is not going to be beneficial to a person who will need to pace it perfectly to reach that desired time. Yeah. And, and it, sometimes it happens in the middle. I remember in 2017, we had an athlete uh, who was running New York City Marathon, and she was running up the Queensboro Bridge. And then all of a sudden, the pacer on the three-hour and five-minute pace group decides that he's going to drop 6.30s just because he felt good. He destroyed <laughs> the entire concept of the entire group, and he ruined everybody's race because they were dependent on him. It was just nonsense. Um, and I felt so bad because you, you, you're kind of left with this, what am I supposed to do moment, you know? Um, you know, I'm, I'm with this group, but I know they're running like idiots, uh, for the time goal and you you have a really hard choice to make and and it's really difficult to ease off and not make that choice. Whereas this coming weekend, people are going to be able to make very conscious decisions of how they want to pace themselves. So you just mentioned you shouldn't necessarily start out at marathon pace. Can you kind of flesh that out a little bit more? Sure. I mean, everybody's different. And this, again, it it depends on your length of time at exposure. But if you're a 240 marathoner, um, you're running 605 per mile, I would suggest starting around, depending on terrain, maybe starting around 620, then building to 605 by the time you're in the 10K range. And then you just hover there for about 22 miles. And then in the last bit, you'll have the energy. Um, You just have to have a lot of faith in yourself if your training has been there to be able to negative split pretty hard and run a great last 10K. Um, But if you're four and a half hours, you really – you don't want to be going off at five and a half hour pace. You can actually kind of hover that line almost the entire way. Um, You just want to make sure that you, you don't go 20 seconds a mile too fast. Uh, at any one given point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's one of those things where you, know, you, you get, you hear this all the time from inexperienced marathoners and we've all done it. We've all been there where we've, we've run one or two marathons and we had that feeling of, I, but I felt great at the half marathon point. So I, so I started to step on the gas a little bit and you're sitting there and you know, people who've done this for a while will just kind of nod and have a little smirk across across their come across their face with the idea of like, well, you should feel great at half marathon. <laughs> like that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're fifty percent of the way through the distance, so therefore, why would that be hard? Right? Like, it doesn't. You know, if you're halfway through a mile, that still shouldn't be that hard. Uh, but if you're halfway through a five k, you, you still have fifty percent. You're halfway through a marathon. You still have. 13 miles to go. If it's already hard at 13 miles, you're screwed. That's a great point. Yeah. At that point, you might want to take a little, take a little walk break, do a little Jeff Galloway walk, run for a little bit and, and kind of re yeah. recenter yourself. But again, if, so I, I would advise people, you know, go in with a plan, have an idea of what you're capable of and set up your pace strategy accordingly, exactly the way that you just laid out. And then have this idea of, okay, I'm not going to abandon it just because I feel good at mile 10, because you should feel good at mile 10. That, that is part of the plan, right? And you have to, and you have this, you hear this all the time. I know you've heard it. If you've heard it once, you must've heard it a thousand times is that the real halfway point in the marathon is around mile 20. 
And while that's it's kind of fun to say and everyone loves whole numbers, there is a lot of truth in that, especially if you are a marathoner of a certain ability, because that's usually when someone's glycogen stores are pretty close to zero in terms of the glycogen that they've consumed prior to the race. Yeah, and that's where that's where um, that's where nutrition comes into play. Your glycogen, your your energy storage is going to drain, but if you're taking at least 200 calories an hour, it's going to hold that off for quite a while, right? So John ran New York City Marathon. Uh, he ran a great race in in November. Um, he was in I don't know 29th place at the 10k. Uh, he was in 20th place maybe at the half, um, maybe 22nd. Uh, but he was still in 22nd with, at like, or 20th at, with, with three miles to go, and he ends up finishing 15th. The, these guys were three, four, five minutes in front of him, and yet he still beat them by two or three or four minutes. They just went out way too hard, um, and they, they, they really died with just a few miles to go. Um, whether, I don't know, you know, everybody had a different reason why, but I know that John took in about seven or 800 calories in the marathon itself. And that was for just two hours and 14 minutes. Right. True. And that's, that's a ton. I mean, now he must have been eating every 15, 20 minutes. Every 5K uh, professional is going to be given bottles, right? So we had about 120 calories or so per bottle. Um, so take that into consideration, right? These, these athletes are taking in seven, 800, 900 calories, anywhere from two hours and five minutes to, to two hours and 30 minutes, uh, men and women. So why would somebody who's four hours, four and a half hours, five hours, take in half as many calories or less? They're on their feet for twice as long. Right. That's And that's one thing. You hear pros talk about this all the time, that they have a lot of respect for people who finish at the at the back end of a marathon because they look at it like, hey, man, like I've never run for five hours before. I have no yeah. idea what that feels like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different environment. Absolutely. Um, it is. It, it, it's its own sport, I think. Uh, because that that requires uh, a lot of self sacrifice at the three and a half hour mark, knowing you have another hour and a half to go. Absolutely. All right, James, we're going to get going. Do you have any any more pieces of advice and some uh, some hard won knowledge that you want to impart before we do? There's one last thing, especially for those who are going to be in warm temperatures. Um, this worked for Coach Esther. Uh, she ran the Olympic trials in 2016. And I don't know who told her this or she came up with this idea on her own, but she put ice chips in her hat. Now, if you remember the the 2016 Olympic trials in LA, it was monstrously warm. It was over 70 degrees, 70 dew point. It was a terrible day. It was the worst day you could have for a marathon. And yet they're running the Olympic trials at 10 a.m. And um, it was was bad. She put ice chips in her hat uh, and – Every, every opportunity she could, she, she used ice chips uh, to keep her head cool. And it really, really worked wonders. Uh, she started off conservatively and she ended up finishing 11th in the Olympic trials. Uh, I think at one point she was in, the, in 50th, maybe even, uh, maybe even 70th. But she ended up finishing 11th um, because those who went out way too fast or couldn't handle the heat and humidity, um, they suffered greatly. Uh, but the ice chips, I remember her very specifically saying that the ice chips helped a lot just to keep her cool, keep her body temperature down. That is a great tip. We actually covered that race 
Uh, beginning in January, we did a rerun episode with Jen Rines and Kerry Tollefson, and then with the men's race with David Roche talking about this and that, like, basically, except for, like, three people in the men's race and two people in the women's race, everyone positive split, and a lot of people positive split by, like, 10 minutes. Like, he, like these, and these are professional athletes who are having these drastic positive splits. So to have that sort of impact in that race, you know, goes to show you what kind of effect that must have had. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Esther ran, that was one of the races of her career, um, aside from Boston when she ran. Oh, I mean, she had a few, she's had multiple. Uh, but to me, that was one of the smartest, most intelligent races she's ever run just because, of uh and i think it set her up for later success um because of how everybody else fared absolutely james thanks for hopping on this was great absolutely absolutely and then anybody else listening uh best of luck in your marathons run smart be safe and uh hopefully we we come away with some prs oh i I, oh i almost forgot to say uh since we're talking about virtual races you have your own you want to give a little plug uh before we get going sure yeah, unfortunately, the registration is closed for the McCurdy Mile. But, man, I tell you what, we, we saw some really cool things. And if you're following along on Instagram or the hashtag McCurdy Mile, it, it, was, it was so – we had well over 2,000 competitors in the first one. And I think we're going to have closer to 2,500 in the second. Um, we just had so much success. It was really, it was really a lot of fun. Um, one of the things that I was hoping for were people – predicting that they were going to run nine minute mile or 10 minute mile or 11 minute and there's blow it out of the water. Um, we had, we had one kid, uh, a young high schooler think he was going to run seven minutes and he had, he actually ended up running like five fifty. It was amazing. I mean, he's going to, he's going to walk out of there. I think he actually lives in Australia. He's going to walk out of there thinking, man, like I'm so good at this. He's going to be so jazzed and so energized that he's going to blow the next one out of the water even more. He's just going to. There's so many people that 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 saw so much success, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to see. So we got three more. Um, one next, not this coming weekend, but the the weekend of the uh, the marathon, um, and then we have uh, uh, June 6th and 7th, and then our last one on at the end of June. I think the 27th and 28th. Sounds great. All right, James. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Nate, Callie, James, thank you so much, all of you, for coming on this episode of the podcast. This has been such a treat. This whole Rambling Runner virtual race series, man, a couple months ago, I never would have thought this would even be in the cards. It came on quickly. I'm so glad so many people were able to experience it and have good experiences with it. That's for sure. And big ups to our sponsors that who helped make this free. Uh, Synchronet, you know, my favorite socks. I'm actually wearing them right now. That was not the plan, <laughs> but I'm looking down at my feet as I'm talking. I'm wearing them right now. Uh, they're the best socks that I own. Athletic Greens, just what a great product. Uh, this, my afternoon picked me up every day to kind of provide the the nutrients and the good food that I need in my body. Uh, McCurdy trained coaching uh, some of the best runners in the country. In addition to that, 
some new runners all the time. They, they are there for runners of all abilities, of all temperaments, and all locations, runners all across the globe. Um, it's just, it's just really is a wonderful service. And I'm so proud to be part of it as a coach as well. And shoot, going back to our 5K and 10K, uh, Inside Tracker sponsored those races. So big ups to them. Thank you for being part of this. I couldn't be more appreciative, not only of all the listeners, but the sponsors as well. Thank you, everybody, and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.